This is a pod about Duchenne muscular dystrophy, a genetic progressive disease mainly affecting boys. The earlier you find out, the better the prognosis. In this episode, you will meet Saskia Hohen, medical doctor from the Netherlands. She is an expert on Duchenne muscular dystrophy and the transition period. Yes, thank you, Meta. I'm uh, Saskia Hauer. I'm a rehabilitation physician and I work in Nijmegen in the Netherlands uh, as a pediatric rehabilitation physician, but I also see adults with uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And besides, I do research for both Duchenne children and adult patients. I introduced you as an expert on transition from pediatric care to adult care. How would you characterize the transition period? Well, transition is a very broad uh, term to describe a lot of things. And I think that the smallest uh, definition is the transition from pediatric care to adult care. Uh, But I think there is also transition within those fields. So if you are a child, you transition from baby to toddler to primary school pupil, uh, and then you transition to the, the high school period. So there are a lot of transitions before you transition to become an adult, and then you have also the adolescence, and then you go maybe to late adults. So there are a lot of transitions between all the fields. And I think every phase needs its own attention points. If you look at the medical care, what are the most challenging parts of the transition period when you're a young adult? If you're a young adult, maybe you have some ambitions and dreams for the future and your body is declining in motorical and physical abilities. So I think it's very important for the care setting uh, is, uh, first of all, look, of course, uh, to the medical aspects and and see if all the organs are working, if the cardiac uh, screening is all right and if the pulmonary screening is is good or you have the support on that uh, field. But next to that, I'm also a big fan of uh, looking at the whole person and see um, which needs there are to be uh, possible to participate as much as possible um, in the society as the patients would wish to. So that can be with help of AIDS or with help of training or with help of uh, care setting facilities and then be able to maximum participate. So how early can you start the transition from pediatric care to adult care? Yeah, I think it's also depending on the patient, some patients, and that's also in patients without Duchenne. Some patients are are really ahead of their age and they are thinking well and they are really um, independent by mind. And we can, uh, of course, uh, maybe can also transition at 16 or something if they they have already uh, everything in place. And some other patients have more difficulties with the growing up thing and the autonomy and arranging all the cares uh, around them. Uh, And they also need more help or sometimes they have still an operation to go for their back or for their feet. And then it's also important to uh, keep them a little longer and let them transition uh, at 19 or 20. I think it doesn't have to be a very large line at 18, uh, but we can also look at the patient, what they need and if they are ready for the adult care. That would be my opinion. Pediatric care has a more coordinating role compared to adult care. How does that affect the patient in the transition? Yeah, I think as a pediatric 
doctor because that's what I am. I think we are a little bit too protective uh, to our patients. And in the beginning, I think they need this because there is a lot of things happening and there are a lot of uh, experts uh, which are involved and you have to know what you have to find where. But uh, I think we also have to teach them how to get their good care and where they, they can get it and not arrange everything for them. And in pediatric care, we have very close networks together with, uh, with other centers, together in our own center. We have a, a lot of collaborations. So it's luxury, I guess. <laughs> but I think it's very important to also learn patients how to become more independent and not keep them protective uh, until they're 18 and then say, well, bye-bye, there's the adult care. <laughs> yeah, just uh, see what you can do. We have to train them for this also, I guess. Can you tell us a little bit about your daily work together with your team when you meet patients? Yeah, well, we have. Uh, I work in an, a university hospital, and in the Netherlands, that is uh, one of the university hospitals, which is uh, part of the Duchenne Center of the Netherlands. And there we, we, we have an expert function. So we see... Um, people from all of the country, most of the east of the country, because Leiden is the other center and he sees uh, the, the patients in the west of the country. And then we see patients once a year and then one day uh, with a full assessment. So with all the medical care, like uh, the cardiac screening and also lung function is measured, respiratory state. Uh, but besides, we also have an occupational therapist with a physiotherapist. We see um, a speech-language therapist and we have a dietitian in our team. So at one day, the patients see all the, uh, the experts and then uh, we have a brief um, conversation with the patients and with each other. And then there's coming a, a report on the advices. And then we share this report and we also call or are available uh, to other rehabilitation centers who are going to provide this care to the patients. And then it's a shared care situation, so we try to uh, find all the experts here and then we try to divide this in all the centers to have the care for the patients nearby. How do young adults themselves talk about the transition when you meet them? Well, it's different. It's also depending on uh, the adults themselves, but uh, some patients really are experienced a big change on all the facets so they change in education they change in care setting they change maybe also from living situation and that maybe in one or two years so for them it's really um, it's really frightening sometimes and sometimes also seeking to the right uh, new uh, balance and other ones are really looking forward to this transition. So you also see patients who are really done with all the protective care of the pediatrics <laughs> and they really want to be more adult and be more in their own um, uh, independency. So it's different, of course. Uh, but I think if we, if we look good to the patient, we can also, if, if we see what they need, we, can, uh, we are more able to uh, find the right timing and also the right way to give them a good place and care. How important is communication for the process? Yeah, very important, of course, yes. Uh, I think it's also, uh, it's shared decision-making is also a very popular term and it's not, uh, I think it's very important that we do this also in transition. So ask the patient, are you ready for this? And what do you expect? And don't start uh, when they're 17 and a half, start when they were, are, are 15 or 16. What do you think of the future? What do you, 
expect of the adult care and how can you uh, arrange this for yourself? Uh, and what do you want with your parents? Because you have also very protective parents and you have parents who stimulate their own uh, independency. And that's also, I think, very important to, to acknowledge their situation and to see if this is supporting or maybe a little bit too protective. And then you can also communicate about this facet. What is the role of caregivers in the process? Yeah, that's an interesting question. As a caregiver, I think I have a very big role. <laughs> but in research, we see that our role is very, uh, very small and that uh, the most of their goals, fortunately, uh, happens without, uh, outside of the hospital. And then uh, participation goals are very depending on feasibility of work situation or uh, feasibility of education or uh, the support of parents or friends or transport is also a very important thing. Financial means uh, are important with decisions. So I think we have a say in the transition of care, but in the transition of to adulthood, I, I don't think we have a very great role in this. And how can parents make it easier well, I think parents know their son, of course, the best uh, of every person in the, in, the, in the environment of their son. So I think they have a very big role. Uh, but sometimes you see that the grief or the sorrows of the parents uh, are also a burden. So they maybe are too protective or uh, they don't want to let go or they have, they have a role themselves. They are the caregiver and that gives them... A sort of um, destination <laughs> I'm not sure but that that are things we see sometimes and then it can also be a little bit difficult for their son to be more independent uh, and also when financial means are used to um, support the parents to to have, be a caregiver and some of them stopped working or uh, then it's also a, a different or difficult to stop doing that and to not being a caregiver but but have a work on your own so there are a lot of barriers i think for parents uh, to be always supportive uh, for the son as much as they want to and they try to i think sometimes it can be hard to do the right thing and i think if parents stimulate to be more independent and to also let other people care for their son and say well maybe also find another living situation, not with their parents. It also helps to be a grown-up man uh, instead of a little boy with his parents. You talk about educating parents. Yes. Yeah, that's important, I think. Um, also, uh, in the light of the, the prolonged life expectation, I think it's very important to educate on time that there is a future, that uh, it can be filled in with uh, work, with education, maybe with a relation, so that the possibilities for the future are not very limited uh, or, or by, um, yeah, on the forehand, uh, not possible. I think it's very important to educate not only uh, parents, but also the child itself to live their dreams as much as possible. And we as caregivers, we have to support the gap between the dream and the possibilities, I think. And self-determination is important, and you've mentioned it, but how can it be increased during that transition period? Can you give examples? Yeah, I think uh, it's important to... Um, well, it starts with seeing the patient or the person with Duchenne alone and not with their parents. Uh, it starts with 
asking and communicating about the needs of a patient and not always what we think and what's in the guideline is also important, but also the needs of the patients are very important. Um, and not every care setting is available for this. I think if we have a screening day in the expert center, you want to know all the medical things. But I think in the regional uh, centers where they also have the psychology, uh, social psychology care, I think there it's very important to make that steps from 12 to 15 to maybe 20 uh, years old and see what they need. Talking about transition, how would you compare the situation in the Netherlands to other countries? I think in the Netherlands we also have a financial cut at 18, so that's um, the reason why a lot of care is really uh, bounded to that age. I don't know uh, how it is in other countries. And for Duchenne, I think we are uh, we have the shared care situation in which we are growing in the regional centers uh, to. It's a special concept. Care, yes, but I think. Uh, for example, in the UK, they are much uh, more um, further in uh, setting up the centers for adult care. So uh, we can learn a lot from them. And we also try to have uh, other specialists on board, like uh, gastroenterologists, because we also see bowel problems and, and feeding problems. And uh, I think in the adult care, we need more specialists, also the endocrinologists, uh, to, to look at the bone health and the hormones. So there are a lot of things we, we additionally need in adult care and we do not need in the pediatric care. And compared with the other, if I compare this with the UK, I think it's, um, they are a little more further in their development on this kind of networks. And if I see, if a, for example, I look at Denmark, they have buddy system. So um, uh, there are age matched uh, helpers who are go who are helping their patient during 24/7, and that's also held in participation. So that, that's not a system we know. In our system, you can choose the home care or you can get a budget for your cares, but you can choose what you want to uh, fill it. How do you fill in? And the body care just arranges also contact with age um, matched peers, and uh, maybe that also helps the participation in uh, in some way so i think that's a very good example of how to uh, how care setting can help in, in 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 enhancing participation and life expectancy is increasing for patients with duchenne muscular dystrophy how does that affect the transition period well i think if we look at the adults now who are 30 or 40 they are really surprised they uh, reach this age uh, and they haven't really anticipated on reaching this age. And that's maybe a shame. I think they are pretty happy that they are still there. Um, but I think if they would have known that at their 20 that they would become 40, then they maybe had some more ambitions or more activities to perform as in, in education or in work. Then when you hear, well, this is going to be my last uh, four years or something. So I think that having an expectation or having a future perspective really um, influences the activities you have or do to have in the future. And do you think healthcare professionals need more knowledge about the transition period? I hope healthcare professionals see transition more than a transition from pediatric care to adult care. And they see transition as a flowing process, which is 
continuous during a lifespan and that a future perspective really i think we we have to be aware that the future perspective is very important also for the choices which are made by patients and their parents what made you interested in rehabilitation care well i think uh, the greatest thing of our profession is that we can uh, we see the patients as a whole so we see the disease and we have to know the prognosis and we have to know all the facets of the disease but we can also really look at the life besides the disease and how that is uh, involving or evolving uh, so the social participation is, I think, the most unique thing of our profession, that we can also find things like technical aids or like a training or something to enhance the life at this moment, because it's very beautiful if you have a med- medicine, and I hope we are someday, we will be not necessary anymore, but until that day, we can help patients to um, to be um, as normal as possible, or to participate as maximal as possible. You have investigated the relationship between health-related quality of life and disease severity in your publication, Health-Related Quality of Life and its Relation to Disease Severity in Boys with Duchenne Muscular Dystrophy, Satisfied Boys Worrying Parents, a Case Control Study. What are your findings? Yes, that was interesting. Well, uh, our findings were that the boys themselves, or the men, the young men, were quite satisfied with their existence. And we hypothesize that that's also because the, the expectancy was not really great. I mean, they were not going to be very old and they were not going to have a, a future perspective. And then it's, uh, if you have a low expectation, you are satisfied if you are living longer or if you have, uh, if you do what you like. Uh, so that's what, uh, what we think explains the high quality of life. And also we see in other research that patients are really good at making the best of it and, and looking at possibilities instead of all the things they cannot do anymore because they are really used to lose abilities. And the worrying parents is also something which I recognize in practice that, the, of course, they have another perspective than their sons and they see the decline and they worry about, well, I, th- I don't think they, they can be very happy because they lost this and they lost that. So I see the difference also in practice. That was our founding in the study, but we also see it in practice. That is a little discrepancy. Do you do any research now? Yes. At this moment, we... Uh, we do research uh, also on symptoms which are more, yeah, which evolve during the lifespan, and then we see uh, in older patients that there are a lot of symptoms which are not life-threatening but really burdening in social participation. And then I'm talking about very low volume of the voice and difficulties with swallowing or with chewing. And you can understand if you have a social thing like going to a restaurant, this is very difficult because if you have difficulties chewing and you're not really good nobody can understand you because you have a very low voice uh, volume uh, then um, your participation is also limited the possibility to go to a restaurant is limited so this kind of things are also very interesting to see in the light of the participation and there's not so much attention to because it's not life-threatening but I think for patients if you go with very simple measures you can change this or means you can change this you can have a little microphone or you can well you have a lot of things you can uh, 
think of to uh, to improve this, then maybe you can also improve participation. Yeah, and I know you've talked about using different aids also, that it's important. Yes, yeah. For example, the, the arm support, there are a lot of uh, different arm supports on the market, but also in progress, um, because now you have only on one side the arm support, and I think it's better to have it on both sides. And a lot of patients think with arm support that that you uh, that your muscles is go, are going to be uh, weaker because you don't use them often. But what we see is that you have a lot of compensation movements when you have muscle weakness. And if you use the arm support, you use your muscles the right way. So you also use the the, the muscles which are a little bit weaker. Uh, and it is good for the arm function. And we see so that kind of aids. I think is very important to. Uh, enlarge the possibilities and to train your arms and to be able to also, although you are in a wheelchair, you can use still your arms for a longer period. So that that kind of aids are very important. It's also important if you cannot use your arms uh, to to have some other aids to have the environmental control. So you can open the windows or open the uh, the doors. Uh, so every technical support uh, can enhance your independency. So if your abilities are incre uh, decreasing, you have to have increased technical aids to just live your life uh, with uh, less uh, care as possible. So do you have any advice to patients and families on how to make the transition period easier? Yeah, that's also a good question. I think it's important to uh, live your dream. I would really encourage young boys to, as, as my boy is also dreaming of, of a professional football career, I think those boys are also uh, able to dream about everything and just to see how far they can uh, can come. And I also think it's very important to formulate your needs. So also in care setting, not only the medical aspect, but also say, well, I have a difficulty in this kind of thing in participation. Please help me with it because I really need this. Or if I can improve this, my life would be much easier. And then doctors are also maybe more aware of the life besides the patients or around the patients. So maybe as a patient, you can also uh, raise awareness on these topics. Thank you so much, Saskia Hohen, medical doctor from the Netherlands, for being in the pod and talking about the transition period. Well, thank you too for inviting me about this topic. This pod, Take on Duchenne, what you need to know about Duchenne muscular dystrophy, has been produced by Koma, and my name is Maria Mattel Suomalainen. The podcast has been produced with financial support from PTC Therapeutics. <laughs>